0: Hi, this is Brad. Like so many people these days, I've been reading more and more about climate change. The facts are out there for all of us to see. Atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have never risen above 300 parts per million for more than 400,000 years. Now, they are over 400 parts per million, a full 25% increase over historic levels. Almost all of this since 1950. Scientists have been telling us for years that 400 parts per million is a milestone. Should we pass it, the Earth will suffer serious and irreversible effects from global warming. And now we've blown past the milestone to shouts of drill baby drill and bring back coal. As atmospheric temperatures rise, negative feedback loops conspire to raise carbon dioxide levels ever higher. Massive uncontrolled wildfires in the western United States, Amazon Basin, and elsewhere are conspiring to dump millions upon millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. As the climate warms, enormous tracts of tundra are melting for the first time in thousands of years. As this happens, huge amounts of methane are released into the atmosphere. Methane could be more than 30 times more potent than carbon dioxide when it comes to warming the atmosphere. And there are several more of these negative feedback loops that'll kick in in ever stronger degrees as global warming temperatures continue to rise. There's a point at which these negative feedback loops will take over and cannot be stopped. At that point, we'll have runaway global warming and nobody will be able to stop it. No scientist can say where this point is, yet huge numbers of Americans hold fast to the kind of climate change denial encouraged by news outlets like Fox News and individuals like Donald Trump. Now that we're living through massive annual wildfires, unprecedented hurricanes, and melting ice caps, it's like we've fallen off a cliff and on the way down, we're shouting, I deny there's a cliff here. Okay, okay, hold on. I know you're reaching for your phone to turn the podcast off. I've heard it over and over again. I can't listen to all this global warming stuff. It makes me too depressed. But it's okay. I've made my point and I'm not going to keep going. This isn't a podcast about the ravages of global warming. It's going to happen. We all know that. This is a podcast about why we're still not doing anything meaningful to stop it. My interest has always been in history. Human history is long and complex. But if you look deeply into it, you can discover growth, patterns, recurring behaviors that can explain why so many of us are denying the reality of climate change and why so many more of us are apathetic to it. For the rest of us, if we've been unable to bring about the necessary change in our climate malaise, perhaps we've been addressing it from the wrong point of view. In this podcast, I'll cover 200,000 years of human history and will explain how we got to this point. I'll also give new perspectives on what we can do about it, It'll take me a year, but if you give me one commute, one day a week for a year, it will change the way you see the world and allow you to see the climate crisis in a new light. Welcome to New Home, a podcast in which I'll explain why we continue to fail to address the overwhelming issue of global warming. And suggest what we might do about it. This will take me an entire year, but to have the kind of understanding that we're going to need to change the course of the climate change debate, we're going to need this kind of deep understanding of the history that got us to this point, and that's just going to take us some time. There'll be a new episode every Monday beginning January 11. It'll be a long trip, but human history has been a long journey to get us to where we are now. I hope you enjoy. This is Episode 1 Adam and Eve. To begin our journey, then, let me go back to the beginning of human history and start with Adam and Eve. I'm talking, of course, about why Adam and mitochondrial Eve. In recent decades, population geneticists have shed new light on the study of humanity's origins. One unexpected discovery is that all men alive have descended from one primeval homo sapien male, and all women alive today are likewise descended from one homo sapien female. All men pass one chromosome, their Y chromosome, directly onto their sons. Similarly, all cells in our body have small organelles called mitochondria that assist with their respiration. These mitochondria have their own separate DNA, mitochondrial DNA, that are passed directly from the mother to her children. It is through the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA that geneticists have been able to trace the fact that all human men and women have descended from one primeval male and one female. Estimates of how long ago Y, Adam, and mitochondrial Eve lived come from the fact that the Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA are passed identically from father or mother to their children without mixing and recombining with the other parent's DNA as the rest of our other DNA does. This means that once every so many generations, a mutation is passed from parent to child geneticists have determined how often these mutations tend to occur and have calculated how long ago why Adam and Mitochondrial Eve lived. Different geneticists have different estimates, and not all estimates have why Adam and Mitochondrial Eve living at the same time, but at least some geneticists have them both living roughly at 200,000 years ago. This is an interesting finding because it's commonly accepted among anthropologists today that the first anatomically modern Homo sapiens skeletons date from around 200,000 years ago. For this podcast, then, I'm going to accept that modern humans started from a single mated pair of Homo sapiens somewhere around 200,000 years ago. Though please understand that this is just for convenience. It might have happened, but guessing about whether it actually did or not is just speculation. The questions for us, then, are what were these Homo sapiens like? And what relevance do they have to where humanity is today in a post-industrial world facing environmental collapse? Of course, we can't know for sure what early Homo sapiens were like 200,000 years ago, but we have clues that can lead us to some reasonable conclusions. These conclusions will lack the degree of certainty that we will have when we get closer to our present day in history, but they are what we have to go on. Our first inquiry, then, is how much language did Y-Adam and Mitochondrial Eve have? The easy answer is nobody really knows. It'll be a couple of hundred millennia before a language is written down. But here's what we know. They each had a hyoid bone. This is a U-shaped bone at the base of the tongue and situated between the lower jaw and the larynx. It's the hyoid bone that anchors our tongue and allows us to have the dexterity needed to form the many different sounds that are needed for language. Of all the animals, only Homo sapiens and Neanderthals possessed hyoid bones. It's therefore obvious that early Homo sapiens were capable of making many of the sounds of what we recognize today as a language, and it's reasonable to assume that they may have had at least some rudimentary language. Chimpanzees that have been studied in the wild show a wide variety of calls that they make, including sounds identified as pant hoots, pant barks, wah barks, pant grunts, and rough grunts. Chimpanzees are able to use these signals to signal a wide variety of feelings, concepts, such as danger and desires, yet they are nothing close to what we would call a language. They might express a pant hoot call upon arriving at a grove of trees and alert other chimps in their band that there is delicious food available. This is an example of using a vocalization to notify their fellow band members. However, it's not the use of language as we know it. One can find lots of definitions for what makes a language a language. But two crucial components I think most scholars agree on, and what I would use for our purposes, are words and syntax. That is, words that signal something specific, such as a mango, rather than a vocalization, such as a pant hoot that expresses something more like excitement together with syntax, that is, a set of rules that allows the speaker to put words together in a meaningful way, such as, there's a grove of fruit trees over that hill. So did why Adam and mitochondrial Eve have language? Since the purpose of the hyoid bone is to enable the tongue and mouth to form words, in all probability they had words. Did they have syntax? That's a more difficult question. To understand the answer, it might be helpful to understand what it's like to be a human with no language. It's unbelievably rare to find someone who can tell us what this is like. The reason is that children who are raised without language past the age of five or six have lost the window of opportunity to learn language, and the brain dendrites that are available for young children to learn language seem to get pruned away. The rare children older than this who've not been given access to language as a toddler never seem to be able to learn more than just a few words, and they never develop syntax, no matter how intensively they're taught. The only exception to this that I'm aware of was Helen Keller. She was born with hearing, but lost her hearing when she was almost two years old. Consequently, she had developed some basic language pathways before she lost her hearing. So when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, began to teach her when she was around seven years old, Helen had already established these basic pathways for her to build on. Consequently, Helen was able to learn sign language after she was seven years old. She went on to graduate cum laude from Radcliffe College and became a world-famous advocate for those with disabilities. She was therefore perhaps the only person in history to record what it's like to live without language. The description she left in her autobiography is both fascinating and enlightening. Before my teacher came to me, that is, before she had language, I did not know that I am. I lived in a world that was a no world. I cannot hope to describe adequately that unconscious yet conscious time of nothingness. I did not know that I knew aught, or that I lived or acted or desired. I had neither will nor intellect. I was carried along to objects and acts by a certain blind natural impetus. I had a mind which caused me to feel anger, satisfaction, desire. I think this passage does an amazing job of explaining what it's like to live as a human without having had the benefits that come with language. I was carried along by a certain blind natural impetus. I had a mind which caused me to feel anger, satisfaction, desire. In other words, being human without having language is like being an animal, not thinking in terms that we are used to in our day-to-day worlds, but simply feeling emotions like anger, satisfaction, and desire. It's not a far stretch from Helen Keller's quote to concluding that a hominin with the cognitive abilities described in her passage would be far less likely to innovate than a homin with language. The development of language allowed Homo sapiens to do far more than to talk to each other about things like their desire to have a spear point attached to wooden spears. It allowed them to form thoughts that were far more complex and organized than anything a hominid without language could form. Thoughts like, when I chip flakes from this large rock to make a hand axe, smaller flakes often come off. These are often sharp. I wonder if I could take a smaller, sharp flake and attach it to a wooden spear that could be thrown to pierce the hide of a wildebeest or a warthog. These are complex thoughts that animals who are carried along by objects and acts by a certain blind natural impetus don't have. It's likely that humans became much more innovative and developed more tools after the development of language. The archaeological record shows that the pace of human innovation during the Old Stone Age, from about 2 million to 200,000 years ago, was incredibly slow. Humans mostly used the same stone tools during the same period, mostly a hand axe. This was a rock that could be held in the hand with one end sharpened that was used presumably for a variety of purposes. This was almost the sole or primary stone tool that was used by our hominin ancestors for a little more than two million years. Then, smaller, diverse, more versatile tools began to be found in the archaeological records beginning around 200,000 years ago. The pace of this innovation would accelerate toward the end of the Stone Age, but it seems to begin here around 200,000 years B.C., this sounds like a good argument that we were beginning to develop the first building blocks of language at this time. What were these humans like, then, who were on the verge of language, abstract thought, and innovation 200,000 years ago? The first question we might ask is whether they were herbivores, carnivores, or omnivores. Since all current great apes have mostly herbivorous diets, it's reasonable to assume at some point in our distant past The ancestors of Y-Adam and mitochondrial Eve were also herbivores, but hominins had millions of years to evolve before Adam and Eve came along. It's estimated that the last common ancestor between chimpanzees and Homo sapiens lived between 7 and 13 million years ago. Therefore, to understand whether Homo sapiens adopted our current omnivorous diet during this long period of evolution, it's again enlightening to look at chimpanzees. Chimps, like all great apes, were always thought to be herbivores. Then, in 1974, while she was observing the chimpanzees at Gombe National Park in Tanzania, Jane Goodall was amazed to see the erstwhile peaceful chimpanzees that she had been observing joined together to hunt red colobus monkeys cooperatively until one was captured and eaten. This is a behavior that has since been observed many times and is now well known. Chimps will organize themselves when a troop of red colobus monkeys comes nearby and will hunt cooperatively until one of the monkeys is captured and killed. This was quite a surprise when it was first reported. It took chimpanzees from being herbivores to at least partially omnivorous. This can be a very important distinction. It turns out there is a fundamental difference in the way herbivores socialize and the way carnivores and omnivores socialize. If you take a herd of wildebeests in the African savanna and add another wildebeest, a stranger to the herd, into their midst, the new member is simply allowed into the herd as a new member and is not molested as long as he or she follows the rules of the herd. This applies to wildebeests, zebras, yaks, guinea pigs, lemmings, or just about any herbivore on the planet. The opposite is true with carnivores. If you take a pride of lions and introduce a new lion into the pride, he or she will either be killed or run off by the pride members. Again, this is true for lions, hyenas, rats, or pretty much any pack-based predator. Solitary predators tend to establish their territories from which they exclude any other members of their species. Conflicts over territory are often violent, and it's not uncommon for such a conflict to end in the death of one of the combatants. If chimpanzees are omnivores, then, do they follow the herbivore? or carnivore code of conduct. Again, it was the famous chimpanzee troop that Jane Goodall observed at Gombe National Park in the 1960s and 70s that provided the crucial insight. As she observed the troop, it went through an internal division and separated itself into two separate troops with different leaders. The breakaway group set up its territory within the territory of the original group. One day, six males from the main group organized themselves into a war party, ventured into the breakaway troops' territory, and found a lone male feeding. When they came upon the solitary chimp, the war party pulled him from the tree he was feeding in and, in a prolonged spree of violence, beat the helpless ape senseless. When they had done so, and when the victim lay bleeding and unconscious on the ground, they engaged in a macabre victory dance that included pant hoots, Throwing sticks and loud behavior to celebrate their violent victory over their rival. The victim was never seen again and was presumed to have been killed. Over the next four years, the same invading troop of chimps repeatedly invaded the territory of its neighboring chimpanzee troop, hunting and killing all the remaining males in the other troop. Each attack occurred with a large group of males from the invading troop finding a male feeding alone and involved a long, violent attack on the victim chimp. The attacks were so violent and brutal that descriptions of these attacks make for difficult reading. Each time, the invading chimps engaged in a similar display when they had killed their victim. This Gombe chimpanzee war forever destroyed the image of chimpanzees as pacifistic, peaceful simians. When the two troops initially split, they occupied separate sections of their previous territory. Presumably, the aggressor troop did not feel like the chimp-like thing to do would be to simply accept half the territory they used to have. Rather, they probably felt like half their territory had been taken. Not only was it appropriate to take it back by killing all the males in the other troop, but they appeared to enjoy the violence and the elation of killing enemy chimpanzees. Similar behavior has subsequently been observed in other chimpanzee groups. The question for us is Did Homo sapiens have this same propensity towards violence against other humans in rival hunter gatherer bands? Clearly, no one was there to record the answer, so we'll have to see what we can infer from the information we have. Fairly conclusive evidence was found in 1981 that hominins were butchering meat as long as 1.8 million years ago. For many years, I think many anthropologists questioned whether these ancient proto humans. Were hunters or scavengers, but our interest is the Homo sapien population of 200,000 years ago. Certainly by then, hunting was well entrenched into human behavior. If we were carnivores by 200,000 years ago, then the question becomes did early Homo sapien communities act as virtually every community of carnivores or omnivores ever studied and separate themselves into bands of hunters who maintained their own territory? and ran off or killed other individuals of the same species that entered into their territory? Or did they coexist peacefully with other Homo sapien populations and generously allow members of other bands to join and intermingle with them? The answer is, of course, self-evident. There's another issue that also seems self-evident to me, although for some reason it doesn't seem to be evident to many academics who've studied the issue. That is, the rapid growth of the human brain from proto-humans to Homo sapiens. Members of the genus Australopithecus afarensis that lived in Africa 3.9 to 2.9 million years ago had an average brain size of just under a pound. By the time hominids had evolved into our Adam and Eve of 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens had an average brain size of just under 3 pounds, three times the size of the brain of Australopithecines. This is a huge growth in brain size, but the size alone doesn't do justice to the complexity that was involved in our brain's development. We have about 100 billion neurons, or brain cells, in our brains, which is about as many stars as there are in the Milky Way galaxy. Our brain operates by sending bioelectric messages via charged ions from one neuron to another. This ion transfer occurs over a connection between the cells called a synapse. There are as many as a thousand trillion synaptic connections in our brains, basically for our purposes. This makes our brain the most intricate and complex thing that we know of in the entire universe. Homo sapien fossils from 200,000 years ago show that our Adam and Eve had about the same size brain that we do. This is an amazing growth in brain size and complexity. How did we evolve such an intricate and complex brain in such an evolutionary short period of time? Every anthropologist agrees that this is a stunning growth in brain size and that the time period in which the hominin brain made this great leap was a comparatively short period of time to evolve such a complex brain. What they disagree on is how or why this happened. What academics who study evolution of species all agree on is that sudden changes in species like this only occur when there is a strong evolutionary pressure placed on species. For example, it's been shown that the beaks of certain Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands grow thicker and stronger during periods of drought when food is scarce and the finches need to be able to crack thicker, harder to access seeds than they normally would eat. Development of these thicker beaks can take place within just a few generations when selection pressure is strong among the finches. When there is no drought... Perhaps generations and generations may pass with very little appreciable change in the size and shape of the finches' beaks. If the human brain made a stunning growth in complexity between the time of the Australopithecines and the birth of Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago, there must have been a severe evolutionary pressure on humans to develop larger brains. Standard answers that have been given, like, humans must have developed larger brains in order to adapt to more complex social orders, seem to ignore the entire branch of evolutionary studies in which all academics agree that extreme external selective pressure is required to lead to significant change like this. What would explain this growth in brain size is a human population that was consistently under pressure of being exterminated. As we continue our journey through human history, we will find that there is one recurring theme that is the defining theme of human history. Conflicts between in-groups and out-groups. 99% of human history is simply variations on this one theme. Sometimes these conflicts are resolved non-violently, but if there is one thing that is endemic to human nature, it's our propensity to resort to violence to resolve these conflicts. No one will deny that this has been the case among settled civilizations within the last 10,000 years or so. Oddly, however, it's a controversial claim regarding the hunter-gatherer bands that lived prior to that. The 18th century French Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau popularized the notion of the noble savage. This was the concept that human nature is innately good. Rousseau argued that hunter-gatherer populations savages in his terminology, were all living examples of this innate goodness. It was only civilization that had corrupted man. Savages, according to Rousseau, were gentle and humble unless civilization came to corrupt them. This concept of the noble savage has sunk very deeply in both popular mythology and among academics. Sadly, one can only believe in this by ignoring many facts about human history. War was the norm in many pre-Columbian Native American populations and in many African tribes that have been studied. Many of the Plains tribes, such as the Comanche and Sioux, had famously martial cultures that engaged in raiding other tribes in warfare. The Northwest Coastal tribes gathered slaves through warfare. When considering the innate goodness of Native peoples, one should not forget the fact that many tribes of the Great Plains used to have torture stakes in their camps where they ritually tortured captives that they had captured in their wars and raids. Of course, many hunter-gatherer populations were very peaceful, such as the Hopi and Pueblo people of the southwestern U.S. and the Iroquois nations before North America was colonized. Obviously, no one characterization can cover all hunter-gatherer cultures, but my limited studies show that violence was very common among many hunter-gatherer populations. It can certainly be argued that hunter-gatherers don't come off poorly when compared to many of the excesses of World War II and other modern wars. Yet it's obvious that not only have hunter-gatherers always engaged in in in-group, out-group violence, but that males have always taken an innate pleasure in maiming and torturing those who are seen as in the out-group. Therefore, we come back to our initial question. Who were this Adam and Eve that bequeathed all of humanity as their legacy? This is the picture we have of our why Adam and mitochondrial Eve then. They were hunters and gatherers, and likely very territorial. The males in the group would probably have been very willing to resort to violence if they felt it was necessary to protect their territory. They probably had some kind of language ability, but their ability to string words together in meaningful ways, their proto-language abilities were probably just beginning to allow them to develop abstract thought, think about things that were not directly in front of them, and perhaps the earliest glimmerings of conceptual thinking. If we were able to learn their proto-language and be there and talk to them, however, it's doubtful that we would recognize this communication as anything close to a modern-day language. They were probably, therefore, somewhere halfway between Helen Keller's no world of being carried along to objects and acts by a certain blind natural impetus and our current world of thoughtful understanding. They were still in the process, then, of becoming human. Where did this process take us, and when did we become fully human? This is what we can deduce from the facts we know. They themselves were the product of perhaps a million and a half to two million years of evolution in which hominin familial bands would hunt and gather for food and sustenance. These bands would undoubtedly have established their territories and would have defended these territories against other hunter-gatherer bands. The American linguist Noam Chomsky proposed a theory in 1957 that modern humans are born with an innate ability to understand language and syntax. Although this was controversial at the time, it's generally accepted as correct today. If this is the case, it's probable that Adam and Eve had some language with some rudimentary syntactic abilities. How much language did they have? The fact that there had been very little innovation as shown through the hominid stone toolkit in the million years or so before Adam and Eve is evidence that they had relatively primitive language abilities. Similarly, The fact that more advanced stone tools began to be found at Homo sapien fossil sites relatively soon after the 200,000-year mark is some indication that their language may have begun to be more complex than it had been. They clearly would experience compassion towards one another. Evidence of empathy and compassion has been well documented in chimpanzee populations and is present in hunter-gatherer populations. This isn't a 100% proof that Adam and Eve showed compassion to their band of hunter-gatherers, but it would be surprising if they did not. How much compassion did Adam and Eve show to other bands of Homo sapiens and other hominins? It's very clear that they would have seen other bands of humans as threats. They certainly organized themselves and lived in small, probably familial bands, like all great apes and indeed all carnivores who hunt in packs. They would have established territories and would have reacted with fear and anger when they saw other human groups enter their territories. Our Adam and Eve would have been driven by their basic impulses and emotions—desire for sex, security, fear of outsiders, compassion for in-group members, revenge against enemies, etc. In short, they would have been driven by Helen Keller's blind natural impetus They would have moved beyond their animalistic instincts only to the extent they would have developed language. The fear and anger that they would have felt when they saw other humans enter their territory are common to virtually all human cultures throughout history. Outsiders are seen as possible threats. It's basic human nature to fear threats. It's also human nature to be angry at someone who is seen as threatening one's food supply, water supply, or livelihood. How would Adam and Eve have reacted when they saw another band of humans at their waterhole? They undoubtedly would have expressed their fear with anger, howls, grunts, hoots, and other threatening vocalizations. What would they have said to each other? This, of course, depends on how complex their language was. If we are correct, and they had some kind of primitive proto-language, they would have probably been able to communicate their displeasure at the presence of another human band in their territory. Now that humans began to develop language, Adam and Eve reached one of the great turning points in human history. Now, for the first time, they were able to tell each other the first of the millions of stories that we have been making up about outgroups ever since. They are bad because they want to drive us from our watering hole. Then we will have no water to drink and we will all die. Such stories undoubtedly would morph as they do now to other stories such as We'd better patrol our territory more diligently and make sure they don't ever enter. If we go into their territory and kill a male or two, it will frighten them, and they will stay away from us. And finally, if we don't go and kill all the males and take the women and children as slaves, they will come kill us. Is this speculation about early Homo sapiens thinking far fetched? Stay tuned to see if subsequent human cultures will make up similar stories about their neighboring populations. Spoiler alert, you may see these same stories made up in different iterations in subsequent episodes again and again and again. Early proto-human groups then acted with raw emotion to confront other groups as chimpanzees do today. Once Homo sapiens developed language, we began to take these emotions and create stories around them. It's endemic to human nature to make up stories about outgroups who are seen as enemies. It has never been necessary to have actual facts or evidence to concoct these stories. This, then, is the picture that we can paint about Adam and Eve. They saw the same people they had lived with every day of their life. They were capable of great compassion toward one another, and there were undoubtedly examples of great struggle and sacrifice to care for other family and band members. By this time, they have developed a great deal of cooperative behaviors women would have joined together to search and forage for tubers and edible plants. Men would undoubtedly have learned to hunt cooperatively. Perhaps some men had learned to chase animals into a narrow ravine where other members of the band were hiding to kill them. Skinning and dressing meat would certainly have been cooperative tasks. Older band members would show younger members how to find the correct flintstones to make tools and how to properly nap the stones into usable tools. Did Adam and Eve have any religion? I'm not aware of any religious artifacts or other archaeological evidence of religion 200,000 years ago. It's possible that they did, but there's no proof of it. We don't know how advanced their language was at the time. It's possible that human religion may have needed to wait several millennia. Before humans developed sufficiently specific language for men and women to start speculating about things like what happens after we die, and are there really spirits around us. Yet if they were to see members of another band from a long way off, they would view them with concern. If they were to see this other band in their own territory, they would react with fear and anger. Assuming they had even a primitive language, they would have begun making up stories about the other band. They've come to steal our mangoes. If they take our mangoes, we may not have enough to feed our children. These stories could easily lead to confrontation by the males of the group against the invading group. The males would certainly have taken the males would certainly have taken their weapons to confront the hunting group. Would this confrontation have ended in violence? Probably depends on how strong the foreigner band was standing their ground. How many of them there were how well armed they were, etc. If the foreign band were attempting to get their watering hole during the time of drought, the chances of violence and death would have risen significantly as Adam and Eve's band would want to protect a crucial resource at all costs. If Adam and his fellow band members were able to disable one of the invading band members, would they have been like the chimps at Gombe, taking great pleasure in beating him, hitting with clubs and sticks, biting him kicking him etc and if their victim died would they have shouted and danced as they celebrated their victory with great Schadenfreude joy probably in other words we begin our journey with mankind able to form some thoughts that jane goodall's chimps were unable to make they had passed helen keller's no world of living without thought yet the best we can say about them is that they were perhaps Somewhere halfway between the chimpanzee troop at Gombe that attacked and killed the breakaway group and modern humans. It's now the twilight of their days. Why Adam and mitochondrial Eve have led a good life. Theirs has been a love story that would rival any in the millennia yet to come. Every day they've gotten up and worked to find their food. They've logged thousands of miles over the years with their troop, following game and seasonal fruits. There have been droughts and times of great scarcity. During these times, they have known great hunger. They've known tragedies, children dying, members of their troop being killed by lions. But they've made it through it all, by each other's side the whole way. It's a story you see over and over again in history. When a couple works hard throughout life to accomplish some purpose, they become deeply bonded. So it has been with Adam and Eve. They've overcome great hardships, but every day they've worked in the territory they've come to know and love so well in order to provide for their family. Now here they are, surrounded by their children and their grandchildren. The day is fading, and the moon has just appeared from behind a tree. Adam lays his head on Eve's lap, filled with the contentment and peace of being with the woman he loves and has spent his entire adult life with. He enjoys her picking the lice out of his hair. Tonight, as Adam and Eve lay down together and begin to drift off to sleep, they perhaps don't think about it, but they've done their part in humanity's ongoing quest to become fully human.